This is Willis Tower, but you probably don't know it by that name. In fact, I feel a bit disturbed calling it that, even for the sake of being correct. So yes, the skyscraper at 233 South Wacker Drive is much more commonly known as Sears Tower, and from its opening in the 1970s up until 2009, it officially held that name. You see, Sears Roebuck & Company created what was the tallest building in the world at the time. Eventually, it became one of the most iconic buildings in America and a defining feature of both the Chicago skyline and pride. With its iconic broadcast antennas added in 1984, this building is the poster child for respectable modern architecture. Today we discover Chicago's Sears Tower. I'm your host Ryan Sokash and you're watching It's History. At one point in time, the Sears Tower was the tallest building in the world. And although we will go deep into the history of this great tower, I've recently discovered the documentary Vertical City on Magellan TV, the sponsor of this video, which showcased aspects of the building that are entirely impossible to show here on YouTube. In particular, their documentary covers the logistical complications of maintaining such a massive tower. I also learned about the crippling costs, challenges and dangers that come along with the title of the tallest building in the world. The great news is that once you finish watching my video, you can head over to Magellan TV to watch Vertical City absolutely free. Let me explain. Magellan TV is a rising star in the streaming world. It's the best value of any premium documentary streaming service in both price and quality. Actually, it's the highest rated documentary streaming app on Google Play. Magellan TV adds over 20 plus hours of new content weekly. 4K is always included in your subscription, and here's the best part, no ads ever. As a history enthusiast, I appreciate the service because Magellan TV is all about the drama of real life, the lives of ancient pharaohs, critical battles in World Wars I and II, soldiers who fought in the Civil War, the battles for the control of the British crown, the Norman conquest, and Magellan TV has the largest and best collection of history shows anywhere. So claim your special offer of a free trial for Magellan TV by clicking my link in the description below, and now, back to the Sears Tower. The story of Sears Tower actually begins with Sears Roebuck & Company, or simply Sears. You see, Sears started a mail-order catalog company in the late 1800s, but what did they actually do back then? Well, mail-order companies sometimes sent out catalogs to prospective customers without asking for a subscription. The catalogs contained everything the company sold at the time be it products produced in-house or bought from outside distributors. If a cataloger saw something they wanted, it featured an order form that they would fill in, mail back to the company with a payment. Later, in the 20th century, a cataloger also had the option to send a telephone call to place an order. Orders were mailed out directly to the consumer, so although this might sound antiquated now, it was actually a major convenience back then, not dissimilar to online retailers who ship directly to your home today. As this was the closest customers had to the convenience of online shopping at the time, the business model was quite popular. The first in American history was Tiffany & Company's Blue Book in 1845, and American companies quickly took it up as a part of their repertoire. One Richard Warren Sears began selling watches through mail order in 1887. The same year, he relocated his business. 
the R.W. Sears Watch Company to Chicago, where he promptly sold his business in 1889, but founded a second one shortly thereafter. This was Sears Roebuck & Company, founded in 1893. R.W. Sears wrote the company's catalog as their stocks expanded to have a little bit of everything. Julius Rosenwald bought out Roebuck's interest in 1895. This move made a lot of sense. As a clothing manufacturer, he brought a lot to the catalog, but the biggest development was yet to come. In 1896, the U.S. Postal Service began free delivery to countryside regions and followed it up with free parcel posts in 1913, allowing Sears to serve a market not often supported in their age. As the 1920s arrived and consumer automobiles became publicly available, the company recognized the increased accessibility offered. To capitalize on this, Sears opened in-person retail stores in 1925. Within six years, the store sales surpassed that of the catalogs and exploded during the post-World War II economic boom. As a result, they remained America's largest retailer up to the 1980s, at which point they began their decline. But more on that later. During the zenith of Sears' success at the turn of the 1970s, Sears had an employee count of approximately 350,000, only seeing growth in the future. As a result, they hired the firm Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, or just SOM, to plan an office tower like no other, a tower with 3 million square feet of space. That building eventually became the Sears Tower, as always, any talk of construction must begin with location, and the Sears Tower was no different. But for the company, being a Chicago born and bred brand, the city was an obvious choice. However, exactly where in Chicago? Well, that was a different story. The logical answer was The Loop, a 35-block area in downtown Chicago. But The Loop is a big place. The district gets its name from the Chicago Union Elevated Railway, or the L. The railway has a central operation area where lines branch out and return. This central loop is what gives the neighborhood its name. To the north we have Lake Street, to the east is Wabash, and to the south is Van Buren. And last but not least is Wells Street to the west. That being said, the loop is actually much bigger than just the areas surrounding the L. It's known for its major shopping district, many financial institutions like the Chicago Stock Exchange and various skyscrapers, including the location of the home insurance company building, the world's first skyscraper. So in short, this train junction defined the downtown area so well that some have actually taken to calling it the loop. However, the neighborhood west of the Loop stagnated during the late 1960s. While many other areas had their defining features, the West Loop area didn't have much, remaining comparably underdeveloped. Despite this, its short distance from the Loop provided Sears with ample incentive to build there, as its employees would benefit greatly from the transit offered. And it wasn't a one-side deal either. The neighborhood benefited greatly from its construction, as accessibility and space offered brought massive attention, as well as the potential for a spillover economy, thanks to all the people that would now be transiting to the area. And indeed, the neighborhood would certainly benefit from the spotlight. To this day, it defines the Chicago skyline. The building is structured as a 3x3 square grid, with each block being 75 feet across. 
As the building rises, blocks on the grid taper off. First two diagonal corners, then the other set of corners, then three more, leaving only two at the top. I should also point out that a communications tower also protrudes from the top of two blocks. Every block has five columns per side every 15 feet, sharing adjacent columns. While these blocks are structurally strong alone, they are trussed together, with trusses also providing mechanical systems for the building. A big concern during construction was keeping the blocks together without using too much steel. This might sound like designers trying to cut costs, but it's actually far more complex. You see, building practices of the time encouraged Chicago architects to use more steel over concrete in most cases. Not to mention, skyscrapers are expected to flex a few inches when faced with the wind and not just in the windy city. 50 miles per hour can make a skyscraper move up to six inches. And while that sounds bad, it's much better than simply breaking. However, too much flexibility isn't good either, so it's a very thin line to thread. The trusses addressed the stability issues, which gained an additional purpose. The blocks dropping off allowed trusses from lower altitudes to take pressure from higher sections. A brilliant solution, redistributing the loads areas more capable of taking them. This is crucial for the highest asymmetrical sections of the tower, relying on its central blocks for stability. Another problem came from the location itself, and this got political as Sears required the town's support to build in the city center. That support came from Chicago's mayor, Richard Daly Sr., who saw the benefit offered by the commerce of having Sears' headquarters in the city center. He even went as far as lifting the height restriction on buildings during a 1955 zoning ordinance, allowing them to construct buildings that were 16 times taller than their lots area. And with that, construction was fit to go forward. Construction began in August of 1970, excavating the lot at 50 feet of depth, removing 180,000 cubic feet of material, also rerouting a sewer beneath Quincy Street. By November, a 60-foot trench was dug around the site, then reinforced with concrete and steel as the team drilled 201 holes to prepare for these steel beams. Sears chairman Gordon M. McCaff sunk the first beam in a ceremony on June the 7th, 1971. From there, construction stepped up to employ 2,000 workers. Speed was of the utmost priority during the process, so they built a concrete plant in the basement of the building, allowing for a third of the concrete floor to be poured daily, and this was thanks to cutting down on transportation times. Two kitchens, a telephone, and loudspeaker system were installed on every single floor to communicate with and supply workers. Powering this massive effort was another story altogether, so temporary generators were set up, supplying upwards of 14,000 kilowatts to the building. During the winter, this primarily supplied heat to the lowest five floors through conduction using the already placed beams. As construction continued through 1972, it became Chicago's tallest building in the city by November. Funny enough, the previous record holder was the Standard Oil Building, holding its record for a mere month. By the end of 1972, 1,600 employees were working on the building, divided into three shifts, and there had already been one death during construction. 
The team had only reached the 77th floor as labor strikes and poor weather delayed construction. You see, beyond the 84th floor, construction would require additional care due to the winds. Even so, by February of 1973, the Sears Tower surpassed the Empire State Building in height, with four more stories still in the works. And then it happened. On May the 3rd, 1973, a ceremony commemorated the final beam placed at the top floor. The high spirits weren't to last long, as a week later, an elevator shaft caught fire and killed four workers. Four days later, a fifth worker fell and died in an unrelated incident. In June, another labor strike halted work which didn't stop Sears from moving their furniture into the lower floors. While construction didn't finish until 1974, Sears opened the building to employees on the 8th of September 1973. But perhaps what captured the public's attention most were the beacons that were added to the roof of the building to caution airplanes marking the first time a building in Chicago required such a precaution. By March, Sears occupants took up three quarters of the property. The final result was a building that reached 110 floors, including three basement floors at a height of 1,450 feet. In 1984, broadcast antennas were added to the top floor, bringing the structure's height up to 1,729 feet. It was the tallest building in the world and remained so until the patron Twin Towers in Malaysia surpassed it in 1996. While the Sears Tower flourished, its namesake company was declining. During the 1980s, Sears spread off into other businesses like real estate and financing, with the Kmart Corporation surpassing them as America's largest retail corporation. By 1992, the decline could no longer be ignored, as the company began selling off its subsidiaries. Its iconic general catalog was discontinued in 1993, and by the middle of the decade, its largest subsidiary, the insurance company Allstate, split off. By 2002, Sears purchased Land's End for $2 billion, but was acquired by Kmart for $12 billion. Land's End split off in 2014, and in October of 2018, Sears finally filed for bankruptcy. So what happened to the tower? Well, during all of this transition, it remained a major business center, and as Sears continued downsizing, eventually they lost their majority holdings in the building named for them. The insurance broker Willis Group Holdings got most of the office space within the building along with its naming rights, and so it was. On the 16th of July, 2009, an era of Chicago came to an end. The name was officially changed to Willis Tower. As a side note, they're not the building's largest tenant today, as that title goes to United Airlines. So now that we have an understanding for the tower's history, let's take a look at what's actually inside. First of all, a tower of such height needs to have outstanding vertical transportation. Hence, the Sears Tower was planned with 103 elevators, including 14 double-decked elevators. The office stories are served by 97 elevator cabs, but due to the presence of the double-decked elevators, these occupy 83 shafts. As designed, one bank of single-decked elevators connect the lobby to the lowest 28 stories. 
banks of double-decked elevators travel to the sky lobbies at the 33rd and 34th floors or the 66th and the 67th floors where passengers can transfer to local elevators. The 34th through 103rd stories were served by local elevators that operate from the sky lobbies, with two elevators also running directly from the lobby to the sky deck on the 103rd floor, but more on that in a moment. As of 2018, the elevators carried 5.8 million passengers per year. Six of the elevators are used for freight, with one of the freight elevators serving all stories and traveling to a height of 1,440 feet. In fact, this elevator would be reserved for the Chicago Fire Department during a fire or emergency, with the other elevators being controlled from the 33rd floor. The elevators would be dispatched to the affected floors during a fire to assist with evacuation. The building also has 16 escalators, including double height ones, traveling from the main lobby to the lower mezzanine. Another set of escalators connects the 33rd and 34th stories. The 103rd floor features an observation deck known as the Sky Deck. At 1,353 feet off the ground, it's the tallest observation deck in the United States. It's also one of the most famous tourist attractions in Chicago. At the turn of the century, the tower began focusing more on tourism, renovating the Sky Deck on the 103rd floor. These renovations added four glass boxes, extending slightly over four feet from the building. This is known as the ledge. It provides a view of the whole city from a great vantage point. Of course, one's thoughts when standing on the ledge might include fears of glass breaking. Well, that's not exactly unfounded, as the glass has had a history of cracking. But don't worry, there were no deaths or injuries, but it must have been scary all the same. You see, while the glass can withstand 4.5 metric tons of weight, the laminated glass flooring on one box cracked on May the 29th, 2014. Then once again on June 12th, 2019, in that same box. Even those who are not afraid of the heights would most likely pause for a moment with that knowledge. On the other hand, there were some visitors so undeterred by height that they elected to climb on the outside of the structure. Let me explain. On the 25th of May, 1981, Dan Goodwin, wearing a homemade Spider-Man suit, climbed the tower while using suction cups and skyhooks. Despite several attempts by the Chicago Fire Department to stop him, he made the first successful outer ascent. Naturally, Goodwin was arrested at the top of the tower, finishing a seven-hour climb and was later charged with trespassing. Goodman stated that the reason he made the climb was to call attention to shortcomings in high-rise rescue and firefighting techniques. After a lengthy interrogation by Chicago's district attorney and fire commissioner, Goodwin was officially released from jail. Then, in August of 1999, a French urban climber ascended the building using his bare hands and feet. A thick fog settled near the end of his climb, making the last 20 stories of the building's glass and steel exterior slippery and extra dangerous. That being said, there's actually a legal way to climb the building with your own two feet. You see, since 2009, the Willis Tower, I mean Sears Tower, has hosted its annual Skyrise Chicago charity event, which indeed is the world's tallest indoor stair climb, where participants can legally climb the building's 103-story staircase. So with all the focus being on the tower's top, 
Did you ever wonder what was below ground? The Franklin Street side of the building is six feet lower than the Wacker Drive entrance, so Franklin Street's entrance is below the plaza, leading to the building's lower mezzanine. Below ground level are three basement levels with a total area of 400,000 square feet. The basements include a 1,200 seat cafeteria, commercial space, service areas, and loading dock for 17 trucks. The basement also contains a 150 spot parking garage. The building's base covers 463,000 square feet and contains two lobbies for tenants who primarily enter from Wacker Drive and Franklin Street. Shoppers, restaurant patrons, and visitors to the Sky Deck use the southern entrance on Jackson Boulevard. The Wacker Drive lobby has a rather incredible attraction titled, In the Heart of This Infinite Particle of Galactic Dust, a 2019 artwork by Jacob Hashimoto. The work consists of over 7,000 rice paper and resin discs that are hung from the ceiling. The commercial complex at the building's lowest stories is known as the Catalog, a reference to the Sears mail-order catalogs of the past. This six-story complex includes numerous restaurants extending into three of the building's basement levels and the three-story annex to the south and west of the tower. The catalog also contains decorative details such as handrails and staircase landings inspired by elements of Chicago's build environment. The third story of the catalog contains a 30,000 square foot co-working space operated by convenience. While we have covered many older buildings on this channel, the Sears Tower still rivals the greats. It's probably one of very few buildings from that time frame that I actually appreciate. And perhaps that's comment of bias. You see, one of my own family's great points of pride was that my grandfather was a construction worker on that tower. All the same, the tower's history is quite fascinating despite its comparative youth. It may officially be called Willis Tower, but the name hasn't stuck in my mind. Let me know if you feel the same way by hitting that subscribe button. Seriously, as the 50th anniversary of its opening approaches, the tower still carries the name of its creator in the minds of the general public. Sears created something that will last into the ages. Anyways, before we wrap up here, you may have noticed that we didn't talk about what's on top of the building, on the rooftop. Well, that's because we already have a video about it. So check out the rooftops of Chicago's most famous buildings. And until next time, this is Ryan Sokash signing off.